This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Welcome. This is Coronavirus Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Many people have lost their jobs during this epidemic. Some are just furloughed and will be back, though many of those may find themselves making less than they had before. For others, their jobs are just gone, either to cutbacks or because where they worked simply no longer exists. If you own a house, then how do you keep from losing it? And what do you tell the mortgage company? Fortunately, we have some answers. Keith Gumbiger is vice president at HSH.com, a major mortgage information site, and he has a long and deep expertise in all things involving home finance. Keith, good to have you with us. How are you? I'm good, and it's good to be here, Gil. Before we get to any of the specifics, let me just admit right at the beginning something that's going to be a problem with people. You're going to try and get your loan servicer on the phone, and you may find yourself waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. It's definitely been a problem. Uh, you know, mortgage lenders were unprepared for what was offered under the CARES Act, which is essentially forbearance by request. And so servicing departments simply got overwhelmed. And yeah, some uh, some homeowners have trouble getting through to folks and uh, getting their relief that they need. Keith, before we get into this, let's just define the term. What exactly is forbearance? It doesn't mean your payments are forgiven or erased. You're still going to have to make these payments eventually. That's absolutely the case. This is not loan forgiveness. This is not take a payment holiday just because you feel like it. Uh, this is a hardship request that you are having difficulties making payments on your loan and uh, you know, verbal, in this case, promise that you will make those payments up at some later date. Okay. When I reach out, as you said, I'm probably going to reach out to my mortgage servicer. They don't necessarily own my mortgage. They may just be servicing it. Uh, what we know now is that your point of contact for your mortgage in all cases is your servicer. So you're going to be able to reach out to them by looking on your monthly statement uh, or a mortgage bill, or you will find uh, by regulation, you'll find the name of the institution that owns the loan, uh, the servicer's name, website information, telephone numbers to call. Sometimes you'll even find other information about how specifically to act if you're looking for assistance. Now, are they the people that will make the final decision on whether I can get forbearance, or are they going to have to reach out to somebody? Well, under the CARES Act, your servicer will be in control of that, so they have direct authority to be able to put you into a forbearance program. What are my rights in terms under the CARES Act for the mortgages that qualify what are my rights in terms of forbearance? Essentially, um, you can get in touch with your servicer and request forbearance for a period of up to six months without providing any documentation of hardship. So if you can claim that you've been injured or have had a financial difficulty as a result of the coronavirus outbreak, you simply request forbearance and they'll put you into a forbearance program for a period of time. Most lenders are putting you in programs for about three months 
after which time you'll be asked to uh, not recertify, but talk to them again. Can you make payments or do you need an extension? Uh, extensions can run for as long as a year. Now, are there any fees or penalties or additional interest payments that are going to pile up during this time? Under the CARES Act, they can't charge you any additional fees. Uh, the standard interest you would be expected to pay on your loan, of course, would continue to be due. Uh, and then, of course, when your payment period, when your forbearance period comes to an end, uh, you're going to want to discuss payment, repayment of that with your mortgage servicer and a variety of payment options may be available to you. Okay. And that's a separate thing because when I get into that conversation, a lot of things could happen. They could say, well, we're going to extend your mortgage by however many months we gave you forbearance. Or they can say, hey, you've got to give it to us a bit at a time over, say, 12 months. Or they could they say, no, you owe it all in a lump right now. Well, the, the, the good news is that for loans that are covered under the CARES Act, uh, they are strongly encouraged to not require you to make any sort of immediate lump sum catch-up payment. Uh, payments over a period of time are commonplace, of course, uh, and more lenders, more servicers are receptive to the idea of simply tacking on to the end of your loan, uh, extending the term, if you will, uh, the number of payments that were offered, uh, payment relief that was offered to you during your forbearance period. Okay. Now, we talked about what kinds of loans are covered here, and let's get more specific about that. Basically, it's whether you have a Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA, VA, or USDA loan. Those are the ones that are covered by this Forbearance Act. First question, how do I find out if I have one of those? Because I think a lot of people just can't answer that question. Well, you can do you can find out in a couple of ways. First, of course, your servicer will know exactly what kind of loan that you have and what sort of forbearance regulation would cover you, whether that's FHA, VA, USDA, uh, Fannie or Freddie back loans. Uh, if you suspect that you want to do that on your own, Fannie and Freddie both have lookup tools that you can go find out if they own your loan. Uh, some of those were put in place during the uh, Making Home Affordable uh, time back in the 2008 and 2009 crisis, so borrowers could go look up and find out who owned their loan and begin the process. Okay, so let's find out. I don't have one of those government-backed loans. I have a jumbo or I have uh, an arm loan. What do I do then? Well, the initial process is exactly the same. Pull out your statement or your monthly mortgage bill, Look on it for your contact information for your lender or servicer, uh, and then make that initial phone call or visit their website and fill out a form to request, at least to discuss, uh, a forbearance opportunity for your loan or that you're having difficulties making payments. Some of them have that sort of structure already there. Once you get someone on the phone, you're going to want to discuss with them exactly what your circumstance is. And for non-government-backed loans, it's very likely that you'll be required to document your hardship. So that is, they'll send you a form to fill out. You can explain how you had an income loss or you've had an asset loss or whatever the case might be. And then they will come back to you and discuss with you what sort of payment plans might be available to help ease your burden for a period of time. Now, if it turns into something that's more permanent, that your income really isn't coming back, after a year's time of forbearance, whether that's the entire payment or a portion of that payment, uh, you certainly can request a loan modification. Uh, there were a lot of those done in the downturn, as you know. Uh, many millions of homeowners had to have their mortgages modified. That's something that still exists out there. Well, let's give people an example of the kind of thing that you might ask for here. If I've got a 
year mortgage? Might I be able to ask for a 30-year mortgage to get the monthly payments down in the future, even if the total mortgage amount is the same? Most of the standard uh, modification agreements that come out of Fannie and Freddie allow for things like extending the term of the loan, uh, extending out uh, the payment period from where you are to uh, uh, something that's more, um, I guess, affordable or sustainable would be the word. Um, you can certainly request a lower interest rate. Modifications to interest rate certainly have happened over time. A lender may offer you a, a lower interest rate for a time, and then it, it runs for a couple of years and then reverts to where it was before. I guess one of the good things for people in terms of modifications is that Mortgage rates are really low right now. If you are working and you can qualify, possibly getting a new mortgage, if you can keep those initial fees down, of course, that could really clobber you. But still, you've you've got a little bit of leverage right now because there will be some competing rates out there that will be low. So mortgage rates are probably going to be low for the foreseeable future, uh, at least likely through the end of the year. And if you have a temporary forbearance now, get yourself back underway again, say September, October, you may still find some fantastic rates in the marketplace and you may be able to take advantage of them then. Okay. At least there's something out there. If Last question, Keith. If I call a bank and I get an operator who isn't really up on all this, and it's a lot to be up on, and they say no, and I'm going, no, I, I have a right to forbearance. I have a government-backed mortgage, and I really have a right to this. My bank's giving me problems. Any place I can go? You can certainly ask to talk to a supervisor. Would be a good place to start at the institution who may be a little bit more knowledgeable. Um, If the folks you're talking to aren't really sure, you can ask to talk to anybody in loss mitigation. That's kind of of a keyword for that sort of thing. Asking for help uh, for loans that are in forbearance or modifications or in difficulty in making payments. Um, If that doesn't work out well for you, you should probably get in touch with the CFPB. Um, They have been fielding a lot of complaints, as you might expect, with non-responses or lack of responses or incomplete responses from servicers. Again, the servicers have become overwhelmed by this, but you can certainly reach out to the CFPB and see if they have some guidelines on how you can proceed. Keith Gumminger is vice president of HSH.com, which is a major mortgage information site. Keith, thank you for your expertise. I hope it provides people some comfort and helps keep them in their homes. Me too, Gil. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. You're listening to Coronavirus Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to Coronavirus Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. We're headed into summer in this time of pandemic, and that's a hopeful time. Some epidemiologists are hoping the warm weather brings a slowing of the virus. And there's also evidence it is less likely to spread outdoors than in. But that brings with it another problem, which is how air circulation and air conditioning in buildings that we rush into on a hot day might actually make things even worse. Justin Davidson's been looking into this. He is the architecture critic for New York Magazine. Justin, good to have you with us. How are you? Good to be here. Thank you. The problem with this is we know how some things travel through the air that actually smell, like the smell of food, cigarette smoke, things like that. But viruses don't smell, even though 
they still travel. No, but they travel with the same air currents. So if you can smell cigarette smoke or you can smell food, you're smelling particulate matter in the air. That's what that is. And so it's carrying with it the same kinds of droplets, aerosolized particles uh, that the virus travels with. What we don't know is how infectious those virus particles may be. Um, that's still somewhat up in the air, but there's enough localized um, evidence, a few studies here and there, that suggest pretty strongly that we should be paying attention to the possibility that that the virus doesn't just transmit from you know the, the droplets that come out of a sneeze and contact people directly within a few feet, but also remain suspended in the air. And so that's something we really need to be taking a look at. Well, a lot of the systems that we have in buildings have to do with keeping smells out, car exhaust, neighboring restaurant, and all of that. So putting ventilation systems in mainly had to do with odor. They really weren't thinking about virus. No, they certainly weren't thinking about this. I mean, um, Ventilation systems are largely geared to odor control, not just blocking out odors from outside, but also venting odors from inside. So the requirements for the number of air changes you need, for example, uh, or the suggestions from the association that of uh, ventilation specialists, uh, the, the amount of ventilation you need is much higher for a gym, say, because you know there's some pretty rich odors coming from inside it um, that you need to vent, or from a kitchen, then say in an office where you know there's a there's a different standard, um, and a hospital is is higher still. But the other issue is that it's one thing to design a ventilation system to work in a certain way; it's another for it to actually operate that way, and then. Perhaps the most important aspect of it is how much outside air is a ventilation system bringing in? Um, Because the ideal really would be, in terms of controlling this particular virus, but really all infectious agents, would simply be to open the window. And if you're lucky enough to live someplace or to work someplace where you can do that, great. Uh, But if you are deep inside a block-wide office building and you're nowhere near a window and it doesn't open anyway, then you are relying on a ventilation system, which may or may not be calibrated and maintained to control the spread of infectious agents uh, effectively. Yeah, once upon a time before air conditioning, it was important to be able to let breezes go through a building. And now we have an opposite situation where a breeze going through a building might be exactly what we need. Well, so most ventilation systems are about keeping an even temperature indoors. Um, So it's air conditioning in the summertime and heat in the winter. And so in order to do that, you save some money and energy by recirculating the air that's already been cooled or heated to the temperature that you want. So in these sealed buildings, you know, a certain amount of outside air comes in, is heated or cooled, and then simply, um, for the most part, recirculates through the through the building. And so anything that it picks up in the building, it's simply distributing. You know, really, the ideal would be, as I said, to open the window and, and, and let fresh air in to mix with the bad air and, and, and neutralize it. But we have generations of buildings that have been designed to specifically eliminate that possibility, to make it absolutely impossible to open a window. So this is really an architectural problem and one that was not a problem in pre-air conditioning buildings. And so, for instance, one of the things some architects uh, from the Mass Design Group who are looking at how to adapt Mount Sinai 
hospital for uh, COVID cases and convert just regular hospital rooms to ICU rooms, one of the things they discovered was that there was an earlier tower that had operable windows and they could use those to insert, you know, advanced HEPA filters and and um, put in some machinery to vent the infected air from these ICUs directly out into the into the open air. Uh, but they couldn't do that with a newer tower from the 1960s because it didn't have windows. So there was nowhere for that air to go. One of the things you wrote in your article about this is that in the average office building, the air that passes through the ducts and air distribution boxes are going through systems that have not been cleaned out in decades. Maintenance is a problem because it's not really transparent. It's not something most people really are aware of. They don't even know who to ask. It's not necessarily the case that, say, the the building operator for your office building would necessarily communicate with uh, with the people who work there and say, well, this is what we do. This is our protocol. This is how often we change the filters. This is the kind of filter we're using. Um, most people don't really care, wouldn't know what to do with that information if they did get it. But the fact is that all indoor spaces are different. And, you know, the machinery may be the same from one to the other, but the way they're maintained is, and operated is radically different. So, you know, it's, it's partly just the anxiety, I think, that f- comes from not having some control over our environment. And this is a change that's happening now. Those of us who had the luxury to stay home and off the subway and outside of any kinds of, you know, shared spaces at all could control our environment pretty much. You know, we could be in our home and feel secure and not like have to worry too much about a virus from say one room to the other. But as soon as the lockdown lifts and we start to emerge and we start to mix with other people, this is one of the questions that we have. You know, you can wash your hands as much as you want, but how do you know, for instance, when you get into an elevator, uh, you know, who's been there directly before you and who will be there afterwards. And it's not just a matter of touching the buttons, it's breathing the air. You know, if you step into an elevator and you can smell the perfume of somebody who's been there five minutes before you, well, that means that there's still some, you know, um, lingering particulate matter from, you know, that person's presence. And what's unclear is whether that's actually a danger or not. I imagine some of this depends on the amount of virus load from, you know, the sneezes or people singing to themselves in the elevator or anything else that might have happened and how soon it was before I got in the elevator. And these are things, of course, that I just can't know. Right. You can't. There's there's really uh, a lot of variables um, and, you know, we can't correct for all of them. But one of the things I think we can do is. Uh, understand the basics of how a ventilation system works, demand of the people who are running a particular ventilation system in a particular building that it be done properly, uh, that it bring in as much outside air as is feasible, that the humidity be maintained to between 40 and 60 percent, that the uh, ventilation rate be kept uh, at an appropriately high level, um, and in some cases that you can supplement that with uh, UV lights that will, you know, kill a virus in, in areas that are not fully ventilated. Um, there are also some products that you can bring into certain spaces um, that supposedly, apparently the science is kind of thin on this, uh, that supposedly, you know, clean the air within, uh, you know, without having to send it through the um through a ventilation system. And uh, the other thing is really make sure that those that those filters are 
appropriately installed, that they're high enough quality, and that they are regularly changed. Um, so those are all things that can be done. It's, it's, it's not rocket science. It's just a matter of being alert to the fact that they do need to be done. So after all of this, to sum up, after all the high-tech things we might be able to do, opening the dampers in the building's ventilation system, letting more fresh air in, old-fashioned things like having windows that can actually open, getting a cross breeze on a summer day, those are the things that may be the best thing for us right now. Absolutely. I mean, the best thing really is to spend as much time outdoors as possible, uh, to move as many of our indoor activities outside as possible, especially during warm weather. Uh, because really, uh, it does not seem like there's much evidence of this kind of airborne transmission occurring outdoors, except in very, very crowded circumstances. So, you know, obviously, we all know to avoid dense crowds. But if you're just, you know, moving around um, through the city, or you're, you know, sitting at some remove, you know, from three or four other people and having a conversation, and you're, you know, six to eight to 10 feet away from each of them, which is not actually that uncomfortable, um, then, you know, you're probably okay, which is why, for instance, restaurants are going to need outdoor space to operate in, um, why some live performances uh, can take place, small live performances can take place outdoors in such a way so that people don't cluster, um, and why, you know, just simply walking around or being indoors, but you know, having plenty of fresh air flowing through your space. Those are all the ideals. And those are things that didn't used to be hard to achieve. We have made them a lot harder to achieve by designing buildings that uh, sabotage that. Justin Davidson is the architecture critic for New York Magazine. Justin, we've got a lot of questions here we can ask of people when we go back into our buildings, and hopefully we get some answers instead of shrugs. Thank you so much for your help. Thank you. You're listening to Coronavirus Change Forever. From the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to Coronavirus Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. The United States has now reached over 100,000 deaths that we know of from COVID-19. And I say that we know of because there are people, especially seniors and the homeless, who die alone. And in this time of epidemic, there isn't always time to be absolutely sure what they died of. Also, we now know that the virus started to kill weeks earlier than we had thought. And the number of people who have died around the world and here in the United States is far above normal and what would be accounted for by just known COVID deaths. According to CDC figures, we've undercounted by at least 10,000 deaths here in the States. Overseas, probably much more than that. Still, 100,000 is a number that makes us pause at a time when we've really been too busy trying to save lives to really take in what we've lost. National leaders from the Christian, Muslim, and Jewish faiths have called for Monday, June 1st to be a national day of mourning and lament, a day marked by moments of silence, lowering of flags, interfaith vigils, ringing of bells, and civic memorials, and this is being supported by the more than 1,400-member U.S. Conference of Mayors. One of the interfaith leaders behind this is the Reverend Jim Wallace, founder of the Washington, D.C.-based Christian community known as Sojourners and the host of the podcast, The Soul of the Nation. Jim, good to have you with us. How are you? Great to be here with you, Gil. really is. Tell me the idea behind this. Well, you just said it well. 100,000 American lives have been lost, and it is a time to pause. That means we should pause. It's the vocation of faith communities to mourn the dead, to mourn and honor and name and lament those who have died. And so 
we're doing that. This is the first time we will all gather in our services, respective services, since this death toll has officially reached that horrible marker. Muslim communities, mosques around the country will be in their own way, uh, remembering and mourning and reflecting on this terrible loss and praying for the healing of the nation. And then uh, Jewish leaders, rabbis all over the country will be doing in their own way, in a Jewish tradition, the same thing. And for Christians, it's Pentecost Sunday, which is the time when the Spirit came and brought courage to the early believers to take their faith to the streets. And so, in and what's remarkable here, Gil, is that it's all of us, all of us in the Christian families who sometimes are divided on things and not together on things. I mean, this is going to be mainline Protestants and evangelicals and Pentecostals and black churches and Hispanic and Asian American, Native American, uh, Catholic, all of us are doing this in our prayers. Monday, we've been asked by the mayors to do this with them. So at noon, local time across the country, we'll be having a day of mourning and lament to recognize and honor and reflect upon what this means. And we've said in our call that the painful thing here, as you know so well, Gil, this suffering has been very unequal. And those who are getting sick and dying at a much higher level than everyone else are elderly uh, and people of color. One more time, if people want more information about what's happening over this weekend and on Monday, June 1st, where do they go? Well, the wonderful thing about this is, you know, we have some of us always say the language, this is in God's hands, and we believe that. This thing feels to me, Gil, it's in God's hands, because all we can do is make this call. But I'll tell you a great story. I got a voicemail yesterday, uh, and, and the first person who signed this call happens to be an African-American evangelical bishop in a southern city. And so he got this call and sent it out to clergy, his friends all around his city. And it was picked up by a Jewish woman rabbi who took up this call. And the voicemail to me was, um, so Jim, we've picked this up. And as she said, church after church, after church, after church are joining us for my Monday. Can we use your call and use our own language and our own traditions and is that okay? <laughs> I said, yes, that's okay. So here's, it's almost a gospel script. Here's a black Baptist bishop, evangelical, reaching out, a Jewish woman rabbi, picking it up, churches joining all over this southern city. This is Charlotte, North Carolina. And so they're having it on Monday, but we didn't control it. We didn't plan it. It's a call that's gone out there. So sojo.net, our website at Sojourners is S-O-J-O, sojo.net. And at that website, as of today, there'll be prayers, uh, Christian prayers, Jewish prayers, Muslim prayers. There'll be, there'll be examples of what can be said and done, but people should do this in their own respective. It's something we've issued as a call from Christian, Muslim, and Jewish leaders, and to those of faith and no faith, to honor and mourn the dead and lament their death and to reflect on what that means and how to be more respecting of life. The Reverend Jim Wallace is founder of the Christian community known as Sojourners, the host of the podcast, The Soul of the Nation. Jim, thank you for joining us. Uh, you blessed me to be on today, and I think together we can rise above the partisan politics 
and healing the nation must transcend our politics. You're listening to Coronavirus Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to Coronavirus Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. The last time the United States and the world went through something as contagious as the SARS-CoV-2 virus was, as you've heard so many times by now, the incredibly deadly flu of 1918-19 that killed millions. Now, there are many differences between then and now. For one thing, then we had no understanding of viruses whatsoever. And generally, medical knowledge has come a long way. The problem is people, maybe not so much. John M. Barry is the author of The Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history. It's good to have you with us, John. How are you? I'm doing well. Hope you are, too. All right. Let's remind people of just how deadly that pandemic was. How bad was it? Well, worldwide, it killed 50 to 100 million people in a uh, world population less than a quarter of today. So you adjust for population, it would be 220 million to 440 million people today. Fortunately, as bad as COVID-19 is, it's nothing like as lethal as the 1918 virus. It is, however, actually more contagious than the 1918 virus. More people are likely to get sick. And that, of course, is a problem because even though the numbers are nothing like the numbers back then, the fact it's more contagious could mean that we'll still have a huge death toll just because more people get it. Although one of the problems with this, it seemed that that 1918 flu started out as something not very deadly, wherever it started. There's still a debate about that. It mutated, apparently, very possibly at Fort Riley, Kansas, and turned into something more deadly. And that's something we never know about viruses. They could stay as they are, makes it much better for making a vaccine. They could mutate into something less, or they could mutate into something even more deadly. Well, technically that's true, but it's particularly true of influenza, which is one of the fastest mutating viruses in existence. Fortunately, this virus is much, much, much more stable than influenza. There were plenty of indications in the spring of 1918, which when the virus was generally very mild, uh, but there were still pockets where you could see real lethality erupt. And there isn't the slightest evidence that uh, COVID-19 will go in that direction. Uh, So I'm actually not worried about that at all. Which is good. So flattening the curve is something we talk about a lot. One of the things that I think we learned even recently from looking at China, which let the thing get out of hand in the first place, is that if we don't overwhelm the healthcare system, we can handle this better. And as this is starting to move now into more rural areas in the United States after initially hitting the densely populated cities, unfortunately in rural areas, overwhelming the healthcare system is rather easy. Yeah, there are very few ICU beds in, in rural areas. Uh, that is a very real concern. In Wuhan, the case fatality rate was 5.8%. The rest of China was 0.7%. And the difference was in Wuhan, there were no ICU beds available. The healthcare system was completely overwhelmed. You know, you can do tremendous supportive care in a modern ICU, things that they couldn't even dream of in 1918. So even though we don't have treatments yet, that you can use against COVID-19, they're still keeping people alive, surviving, they're surviving because of the supportive care you get in an ICU. If you don't have the ICU beds, you don't get that care. And it's exactly like what it was in 1918 in terms of 
what medicine can offer you. So, again, what you just said, the rural communities, as it spreads there, it is a real concern. And for that matter, uh, even some of the urban hospitals, as we're coming out of lockdown, uh, when cases are surged, they, are, they too are running out of ICU beds. Our understanding of what these things are, our understanding of viruses, we really had zero understanding back during 1918, 1919. So we've come a long way. Back then they thought this was bacterial, so they really had no idea what they were fighting other than keeping people apart, really had no tools to fight it. Yeah, I mean, one thing China did do right was share the genome of the virus very early. I think January 12th is the date, the 10th or 12th. Uh, That allowed every scientist in advanced countries all over the world to know what they were dealing with, to start designing drugs, start working on vaccines. I am extremely optimistic that we will get a solution to this virus. The question is how soon we get it. Uh, You know, whether we get a vaccine that works, how effective it will be, I think will determine I'm sure we'll get one. The question is, you know, will it be close to 100% effective like measles or will it be 40, 50% effective um, as an influenza vaccine? If we get a, a highly effective vaccine relatively soon, early next year, uh, then I think we actually will probably go back to a normal that's essentially like the real normal, the pre-pandemic normal. If it takes a lot longer, I think habits will change dramatically. John M. Barry is the author of The Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history. John, I thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. Take care. You're listening to Coronavirus Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to Coronavirus Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. We now have more reported deaths from COVID-19 in the United States than any other country, and more than a quarter of the deaths reported worldwide. We also lead the world in total cases and active cases of the disease. All of these numbers are subject to change, of course, because there's a lot we just don't know. The United States is still low in the percentage of people being tested, falling behind countries such as Latvia, New Zealand, and the United Arab Emirates. And just as America's numbers may be incomplete, so of course may be the numbers of other countries, such as China, where the number of tests being done is mostly going unreported. But as we pointed out earlier, numbers and graphs are not people. CBS Evening News anchor Nora O'Donnell tells us who some of those numbers were. The first known death was 111 days ago. We've heard so many numbers over the months, how many cases, how many deaths, but each one of those numbers represents a life that deserves to be remembered, not as a victim of COVID, but as someone who was loved with a unique life story. Here's just some of them. Yu Li Hua was interested in the stories of people's lives. It helped inform her writing, her daughter said. Yu authored over a dozen novels and short stories in her 90 years. She could still win tennis matches against her children in her 80s. Isolated from her family in her last days, they wrote her letters. Her daughter told her, you should have had someone to hold your hand. Anna Marie Leone. She was a writer of a different sort. 
She'd kept a list of names from prayer cards she collected from wakes, writing them in a notebook every week to remember them. She had Down syndrome, but her sister said she didn't like to be treated differently. She worked in a hair salon and as a prep cook. Anna Marie Leone was 31 years old. George McKibben was one of the first black teachers in a mostly white school district in Clayton County, Georgia in the 1960s. Not everyone welcomed him, but his daughter said he eventually won everyone over. Everybody wanted to be in his class. He retired in 2001, but still tutored his grandchildren in math. George McKibben was 76. So many frontline workers have sacrificed their lives caring for others. Chris Angelin Castro-Guzman, a 35-year-old nurse, was one of them. Her family said she had been planning a trip to Disneyland for her children when she got sick. Her youngest was just five months old. Messiah Howard was only seven. Are you ready? He was a bouncy, happy little boy and a big fan of the New Orleans Saints. A Drew Brees action figure was his constant companion. His family said his smile never faded, even when he endured hospital stays for a rare disease. He was recovering from a bone marrow transplant that was supposed to save his life when he fell ill with COVID-19. Please know we are thinking of everyone who has lost someone they loved. This has been Coronavirus Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Gil Gross. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.